Welcome to the Clinical Education Initiative podcast, Conversations with CEI, where we feature conversations with clinical experts, their experience and insights on current health issues in the areas of HIV, primary care and prevention, sexual health, hepatitis C, and drug user health. Hi, Duran. Hello, Steve. It's nice to have you back for another episode of the CEI podcast. Thanks, Duran. It's nice to be back. Today, we'll be talking about a topic that's confusing even to a lot of experienced providers. And what's that? Today, we're going to talk about the management of hepatitis B in patients who have HIV. I'll have to warn you in advance, though, there's a lot of open questions in this area. So a lot of things that I have to say today are really just suggestions and guidance, but we'll do the best that we can. That sounds good, Steve. I hope people understand that a lot of the information we'll talk about today is inferred from studies done in hepatitis B patients that don't necessarily have HIV. That's right, John. There's still a lot of gray areas where HIV and hepatitis B co-infection come together. Wherever that's concerned, there are a lot of questions that are unanswered. We'll do the best we can here. And I always recommend consulting with someone who has a lot of experience taking care of these patients whenever questions arise. So back to HIV, HBV, co-infected patients. Why is this important? What's really important to raise awareness about chronic hepatitis B when it occurs in HIV patients. There's up to 2 million people in the United States that have chronic hepatitis B, and it's responsible for thousands of deaths every year from complications from the hepatitis B, such as cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma, and the like. Patients with HIV and who also have hepatitis B have it even worse because having both infections together can accelerate some of the complications from hepatitis B. Remind me again how hepatitis B is acquired. Well, the main routes of hepatitis B transmission are a perinatal infection from mother to child or exposure to blood or other bodily fluids, such as in people who share needles for injection drug use. And also there's quite a bit of transmission by sexual exposure. These types of exposures in people who are not vaccinated could lead to hepatitis B infection. So is all hepatitis B infection chronic? Yeah, that's actually one of the most interesting parts. About 95% of people who acquire hepatitis B as an adult end up with a strong immune response. After a period of months, those people will develop anti-hepatitis B surface antibodies and essentially clear the hepatitis B. They're considered immune for the most part. However, the small majority of people don't clear the virus completely and they end up with a chronic hepatitis B infection in the liver. These are the people that have hepatitis B surface antigen circulating in their blood, and that's a protein that's made by the hepatitis B virus, which continues to circulate in their blood for more than six months after the initial infection. Interesting. So why is HIV and hepatitis B co-infection an important issue? First of all, HIV and hepatitis B share a similar route of transmission. So especially the blood-borne and sexual contact, therefore, they often end up infecting the same person because they have the same risk factors. In the United States, for example, in at least one cohort study, in a group of patients who had HIV, over 10% of men who had sex with men as their risk factor tested positive for chronic hepatitis B as well. Over 8% of those HIV patients who injected drugs as their risk factor also tested positive for hepatitis B, and 5% of those whose risk factor was a heterosexual transmission, and by that I mean 
whose risk factor for HIV was heterosexual transmission. 5% of those patients also tested positive for chronic hepatitis B. That does sound like a lot. I'm sure that varies from community to community in different subpopulations, but it sounds like any sizable practice of HIV patients is also likely to have patients with chronic hepatitis B and HIV co-infection. Yeah, that's right. And uh, basically, if you see a lot of HIV patients, you're very likely to have hepatitis B patients in your practice as well. So that's why we're going to emphasize looking for them and testing. It's particularly important because there are many studies that suggest that people who have HIV suffer the long-term complications of hepatitis B at an even higher rate than in non-HIV infected individuals. So now that we know why it's important, let's dive in. Okay. So first, let me ask, how do you identify patients that have chronic hepatitis B in your practice? Well, you're right, because that is actually the first and most important thing to do is identify those patients. You want to identify patients who have hepatitis B as early as possible so they can be treated appropriately. All of our HIV patients are tested very early in their course of treatment for hepatitis B. Usually, that's one of the the first initial labs we do when they present for HIV care. So those tests would include blood tests for the hepatitis B surface antigen, the antibody against hepatitis B core, which I'll just abbreviate in the future as core antibody, and the antibody against hepatitis B surface antigen, which I'll be referring to as surface antibody for simplicity's sake. Interesting. So how do you interpret the test results? And that's where I think a lot of people do need work. If the patient has antibody to hepatitis B surface antigen, and the level of that antibody is over 10, we consider them to be hepatitis B immune. They don't have chronic hepatitis B. And the only testing that needs to be done in the future is really to consider repeating the titers of the hepatitis B surface antibody every few years to make sure that it stays above 10. If it appears to be dropping, we'd consider doing a booster for the hepatitis B vaccine to get that surface antibody back up to a higher level. If the patient has surface antibody and core antibody, they're still immune but that would indicate they acquired their hepatitis B immunity due to previous infection with hepatitis B. And if they had surface antibody, but core antibody was negative, then it's more likely they acquired their immunity due to previous hepatitis B vaccine. So those are the patients that are considered immune. So what about patient has a positive hepatitis B surface antigen? If it's positive hepatitis B surface antigen, then they are actively infected with hepatitis B. They may be chronically infected, or acutely infected. And if there's any sign of acute hepatitis, like an elevated ALT or AST, it might be useful to get testing for acute hepatitis B infection, which includes the core antibody IgM and IgG, testing for hepatitis B E antigen, and testing for antibody to hepatitis antigen antibody, if that makes any sense. Hepatitis E antigen antibody, as well as for those you suspect of acute infection, the hepatitis B DNA PCR. So about patients who are not immune to hepatitis B and don't have acute or chronic hepatitis B, what would I be testing for? There are a group of patients that show up as negative for surface antigen and negative for surface antibody. And the best thing, those are patients that don't have hepatitis B and are not immune. The best thing to do for them is to counsel them on how to avoid catching hepatitis B, as well as start the vaccination series to see if you can 
promote immunity. Interesting. So what about those puzzling patients who test positive for hepatitis B core antibody, but test negative for both the surface antigen and surface antibody? Those are confusing patients. Those patients always present a challenge. So recall, we've already covered patients who are hepatitis B surface antigen positive. Those are the people who are infected, and we'll talk about more about them later. Patients who are hepatitis B surface antibody positive are immune. And what about patients that don't have either one, no surface antigen and no surface antibody? Those are just core antibody positive. There's actually a number of reasons for that. I think it's always worth keeping in mind the test for core antibody could be a false positive. Well, that's relatively rare. Then there could be a person who is immune to hepatitis B through natural infection in the past, or so they have core antibody positive. And over time, the antibody levels drop to below the limit of detection of the test. Therefore, they'll show up as hepatitis B antibody neg- surface antibody negative, core antibody positive, but they're probably already really immune. And they may just need a booster hepatitis B vaccine to bring their hepatitis B service antibody level back up to levels. But in other patients, if the booster doesn't work, and I do, we do recommend giving hepatitis, uh, patients who are core antibody positive, but surface antibody negative, giving them a booster vaccine and checking later. In other patients, hepatitis B core antibody positive without surface antigen or surface antibody can be a sign of what we call occult hepatitis B infection. They're infected with a type of hepatitis B provirus that doesn't produce detectable surface antigen. These patients are actually chronically infected and can develop complications related to hepatitis B, and they need to be studied further. So in those patients, we often recommend testing for hepatitis B DNA by PCR. Very interesting. So Let's say you discover patients with chronic active hepatitis B. What's the next thing to do? There are a lot of things we want to do with a chronic hepatitis B patient, whether they have HIV or not, but we're going to stick to the HIV patients in this podcast. First and foremost, let's try to prevent them from infecting anybody else. Now that we know their status, we'll advise patients who are positive for hepatitis B service antigen that they are infectious and can transmit the infection to others. If they're sexually active, then advising them to use an effective barrier protection can decrease the risk of hepatitis B transmission to their partners. And of course, they should refrain from sharing needles. It's a good idea for individuals that do inject drugs to refer them for substance abuse treatment or at least to ensure they have immediate access to clean needles. For patients who are hepatitis B positive, the household contacts should all be vaccinated and Those patients should avoid sharing household items that could transmit hepatitis B by blood exposures. Things like razors, or in some cases, even toothbrushes could be exposed to blood. Before we jump into what to do next for those hepatitis B positive patients, I'd like to backtrack a bit to the hepatitis B negative patients you mentioned earlier. So how important is it to get those patients vaccinated I was wondering, is there any difference in vaccination strategy for patients who are HIV positive? That's a great question. And it turns out there have been a lot of studies done on the effectiveness of hepatitis B vaccination in HIV patients. And most of them, to oversimplify, have concluded that hepatitis B vaccination certainly can produce immunity in HIV patients, but it might not be as effective 
as it is in HIV-negative patients. Still, there are several different vaccination strategies you can follow in your HIV patients. I think it's not always clear which one is best. I'd recommend using either the three-dose hepatitis B vaccine, such as Energix or Recombivax, or the newer two-dose series, such as the Heplosav B. If those patients remain at risk for hepatitis B, uh, then I certainly wouldn't wait until after their CD4 count goes up when they're treated for HIV. Some people would think about waiting till the CD4 count goes up above 200 or something. I'll just go ahead and vaccinate them because remember, we can always check later to see if they've developed antibodies. In the patients who are core antibody positive, but hepatitis B surface antigen and antibody negative, which we talked a little bit about above, consider a booster dose of any of the hepatitis B vaccines and then rechecking the hepatitis B surface antibody later on, maybe in sometime in the next one to three months, because most likely those patients were previously immune but their level of surface antibody dropped over time to a level that we couldn't detect anymore. Well, if vaccines might be less effective, how do we know if it worked? So after the hepatitis B vaccination, you can repeat testing for hepatitis B surface antibody. And somewhere between one month and four months after the vaccination series is done would probably be a good time to do that. Okay. So back to the HIV patients or chronically H hepatitis B infected patients, what kind of initial workup would you do before starting treatment? So right now, I'm just going to strictly focus on those HIV patients who are chronically infected with hepatitis B, because presumably we've vaccinated the others or determined that they have some type of immunity. The pre-treatment assessment for hepatitis B HIV co-infected is really important. Of course, in all cases, you're going to do a complete medical history and physical exam. Pay special attention to any potential use of hepatotoxic medications. There should be some testing for pre-existing fibrosis. So we have really, when we get these patients into the clinic, we really don't have any idea how long they've been infected with hepatitis B. So we want to find out whether there's any pre-existing liver fibrosis. You can use any of the fibrosis testing, such as blood tests like FibroSure, which is a proprietary blood test, if it's available, ultrasonic elastography, or simply a calculation of the FIB4 score, which simply re requires that you know a platelet count, transaminases, and if you have any questions about FIB4, you can Google the FIB4 score calculator and probably do a rough estimate of fibrosis even without doing any further tests. Also, it's recommended that uh, you do a baseline ultrasound screening for hepatocellular carcinoma, which I'll refer to as HCC. That is necessary because chronic hepatitis B increases your risk of developing HCC. Otherwise, the common laboratory tests, which you probably get anyway, include the CBC, albumin, bilirubin, alkaline phosphatase, protime, and INR, an ALT-AST and a basic metabolic panel. Once you do that, if the above testing suggests cirrhosis, then we certainly want to continue screening for hepatocellular carcinoma every six months. And if it doesn't, we'll, we'll talk a little bit later on about screening non-cirrhotic patients for HCC because it's a little bit more murky. In addition, always be sure to screen for alcohol use and refer patients for treatment because the combination of hepatitis B and alcohol use can certainly accelerate fibrosis and cirrhosis. 
Interesting. So are there any other liver related tests you would do? Even though you you would do this in all patients with HIV, it's very important to emphasize that it would, especially in patients with hepatitis B, HIV, and co-infection, you'd want to test them for hepatitis A immunity with a hepatitis A IgG and definitely vaccinate those patients for hepatitis A if needed. Look for chronic hepatitis C. So that would be a hepatitis C antibody. And if it's positive, of course, hepatitis C PCR DNA PCR, because that would show you you have a chronically infected patient. And if they have chronic hepatitis C, you definitely would want to treat that as well. And finally, you'd want to look for hepatitis Delta. I'm certainly familiar with hepatitis A and hepatitis C, but what is hepatitis Delta? Hepatitis Delta is a defective hepatitis virus that actually requires the presence of hepatitis B in order to replicate. Patients who have hepatitis B who also have hepatitis delta tend to have a more rapid progression of their disease, so it's important to know about it. Well, how do you test for hepatitis delta? It's becoming more common, but you can test for antibodies against hepatitis delta by ordering the hepatitis delta IgM and hepatitis delta IgG, and that should be done in all patients who have chronic hepatitis B. As you predicted, it's getting complicated rather quickly, but what's next? Well, it is certainly complicated, but then again, this may be the one time in your life, Jaron, when having HIV might actually simplify things a bit. You see, it turns out that several of the antiretroviral medicines that we use for HIV, and these include the most common ones that are available in single tablet regimens, are also quite active against hepatitis B. So it's actually possible to treat both viruses with one single pill as long as we choose them correctly. That's amazing, Steve. So one single tablet to treat both HIV and hepatitis B? Tell us more. You see that a two-drug regimen for hepatitis B is often preferred for patients with hepatitis B alone. And by those, I mean who are HIV negative, but chronic hepatitis B positive. Although not all hepatitis B mono-infected patients should necessarily be treated for their hepatitis B, It turns out that all patients with hepatitis B who also have HIV should be treated for the hepatitis B and HIV. So that kind of eliminates the complication of trying to determine who should be treated. If you have HIV and hepatitis B, you should be treated for both HIV and hepatitis B. Also, remember, we do recommend treating all HIV-positive patients for their HIV so that if we can include medicines that are also active against hepatitis B, it certainly makes sense to do so. It is kind of like killing two birds with one stone. Interesting. So I'm I'm getting a little bit confused. Which medicines are you talking about? Yeah, I don't blame you. But the HIV medicines that are also active against hepatitis B include tenofovir. That's both the alphenamide and dysproxyl form. Also lamivudine, otherwise known as 3TC, and emtricitabine, otherwise known as FTC. Since both of these agents are in many of the single tablet regimens recommended for HIV first-line therapy, it actually simplifies the decision-making and it reduces the number of choices you have overall and the best choice down to sort of a single tablet regimen for HIV. And I would consider choosing a single tablet regimen for HIV that contains tenofovir and either FTC or 3TC. So there are several ways you could construct one of these regimens. However, again, oversimplify, single tablet regimens such as Bictegravir, FTC, 
tenofovir alphenamide, which is known by the brand name in the U.S. as Bictarvi, or darunavir cobacistat, FTC, tenofovir alphenamide, again known as a brand by the brand name of Simtuza, or rilpivirine, FTC, tenofovir alphenamide, known as Odefsi in the U.S., or even a Favarin's 3TC tenofovir disproxyl, which is a generic, has several names, but has a Favarin's in it. It's the old, it's the generic replacement for Atripla. And there are others also that contain those backbones of either 3TC and tenofovir or FTC and tenofovir that would also fit the bill. Interesting. So what about patients that can't take tenofovir? Most actually can, but you may rarely come across a patient who can't take tenofovir for various reasons. And in that case, you should use a regimen that's fully suppressive against the HIV that doesn't include tenofovir. And then for the hepatitis B, add entecavir for the treatment for hepatitis B. Entecavir, don't forget, does not treat HIV. Oh, interesting point. So another question, Steve. So what about patients who are pregnant? Yeah, pregnancy often presents an issue, and it certainly would be worth considering consulting an expert in those patients. It's a great question because it causes a lot of concern amongst providers and patients alike. But patients who are pregnant should certainly be treated with an effective antiretroviral regimen for their HIV. And the agents we mentioned above for the hepatitis B, such as 3TC, FTC, or tenofovir, both alphenamide and tenofovir disproxyl can safely be used during pregnancy. Very interesting. So lately, there's been a lot of buzz about using two drug regimens for HIV. So what if someone really wants to do that, but also has chronic hepatitis B? Yeah, so so we've even done a previous podcast about some of these two drug regimens, Jaron. And there certainly are instances you may wish to use the two-drug regimen for HIV, particularly these days in the case of the injectable HIV medicine, which is cabotegavir and rilpivirine. Patients who really want to do the every-other-month injections for their HIV would only be getting two drugs, cabotegavir and rilpivirine, for HIV, and neither one of those are actually active against the hepatitis B. If you're going to use this combination... I'd recommend probably adding two additional oral drugs for the hepatitis B treatment. For example, you could use a single tablet regimen that contains tenofovir and FTC. That's TAF, the tenofovir alphenamide FTC, uh, TDF, tenofovir disproxyl and FTC, or a single tablet regimen containing a TDF, tenofovir disproxyl and 3TC. Of course, that does sort of involve an extra pill and eliminates some of the desirability of the injectable HIV regimen, but it's only one extra pill and some people I think really may want to still do that. The same goes for if you were going to use an oral two-drug regimen for HIV, such as dolutegavir rilpivirine. Um, and if for some reason you wanted to use dolutegavir 3TC for HIV, then you could actually, I'm going to backtrack. So the same as the injectable goes for the oral two-drug regimen for HIV, dolutegavir rilpivirine. That would be very similar to the injectable cabotegavir rilpivirine. But if you wished for some reason to use dolutegavir 3TC for HIV, then you could just add a single active agent, such as tenofovir, which is tenofovir alphenamide or disproxyl, or you could add entecavir for the hepatitis B. Interesting. So that seems like it may be unnecessarily complicating things in a way. 
Yeah, I agree. It could be. It it probably is simpler just to use one of the recommended single tablet regimens for HIV that includes two active agents against hepatitis B treatment. But I'm mentioning this just in case it's always the source of questions. So is there any special monitoring in blood tests that you need to do for HIV, hepatitis B co-infected patients, once you have them on treatment? The monitoring is actually pretty similar to other HIV patients. So you certainly would continue treating them like regular HIV patients. However, I generally recommend getting a hepatitis B DNA PCR maybe every three or so months until the hepatitis B DNA is undetectable. And as an aside, that often takes longer than getting the HIV to undetectability. Then continue to get the hepatitis B DNA maybe every six months or so to make sure that it stays suppressed. You may want to do closer monitoring of the liver function tests like the transaminases, the AST and ALT. I think that's definitely warranted once treatment starts because there can be a flare-up of these liver enzymes indicating hepatitis when initiating treatment for hepatitis B or if a patient stops treatment unexpectedly. And they should definitely be warned not to do that because the hepatitis B can flare up. So Maybe every three months until the hepatitis, so check these transaminases maybe every three months until the hepatitis B is undetectable. And then I would say as usual, every six months or so after that. In addition, many clinicians check the hepatitis B E antigen every year or so to see whether patients have converted to E antigen negative, which might indicate a better immune control of the hepatitis B. And I've actually generally screened patients for development of hepatitis B surface antibody. And although that's very rare that patients become immune to their hepatitis B while on treatment, I have had at least one or two patients who have developed hepatitis B surface antibody indicating total immune clearance over the years. Last but not least, an area that still has a lot of controversy around it, screening for hepatocellular carcinoma or HCC should probably continue even while patients are on treatment. Patients with HIV and hepatitis B co-infection do seem to be at increased risk of a developing hepatocellular carcinoma. So currently, I recommend screening every six months in patients with cirrhosis. And in patients without cirrhosis, it's really unclear how often they need to be screened. The risk for HIV, hepatitis B chronic infection patients on treatment isn't really well-defined. But it certainly makes sense to at least screen those patients who have the traditional risk factors for hepatocellular carcinoma, such as Asian men or Black men over 40 years old, Asian women over 50 years old, and people who can report a, or report a close family member with a history of HCC. I'd also throw patients with hepatitis delta into that group because they're probably at increased risk of HCC as well. To keep things simple in my practice, I actually do screen most of my chronically activated, chronic active hepatitis B patients for HCC every six months, at least with an ultrasound. Oh, that's great to hear that you do that, Steve. But just a quick question. So just to be sure I've got this straight, all patients with HIV should be tested for hepatitis B upon entry to care. If tests show that they are hepatitis B negative, but not immune, then they should be vaccinated and tested later for immunity. Yeah, that's right. 
Okay. And if their tests show their chronic active hepatitis B, then counsel them on how to prevent transmission of their hepatitis B to others through household contact, sexual transmission, or needle sharing. Sure. Okay. And then meanwhile, in evaluation for the extent of fibrosis and cirrhosis can be done. And finally, initiating treatment for both HIV and hepatitis B, along with some specialized monitoring for hepatitis B, DNA levels, and liver enzymes, and HCC, if that's correct. You got it, Jaron. That was really a great summary. At least one person was listening to this podcast. (laughs) And keep in mind, always, that a lot of what we do to treat HIV and hepatitis B co-infected patients is extrapolated from patients who are only infected with hepatitis B. And therefore, you may come across situations where it's not quite clear what the best way is to proceed. If this happens, I wouldn't hesitate calling on someone who's an expert with more experience in treating HIV and hepatitis B co-infection, somebody who has a lot of HIV patients, or perhaps a gastroenterologist who treats a lot of hepatitis B. More information, and I think we'll, we'll probably print this at the end of the the podcast, you can find more information in the ASLD literature on the IDSA website and soon to be updated New York State guidelines for HIV and hepatitis B co-infection. Those can be found at hivguidelines.org. No doubt the New York State Clinical Education Initiative, or CEAT, which we're doing this podcast for, obviously, will come up with some great training once these guidelines are published, and they'll be easy to locate at ceitraining.org. So I hope you have a great rest of your day. Looking forward to being back in a few months for another podcast, as long as that we can confirm that some people are listening to this one. (laughs) Well, I'm looking forward to it, Steve. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Jaron. Have a great day. Thank you for tuning in. Join us next time for a new episode of Conversations with CEI. Visit us at ceitraining.org and follow us on CEI social media platforms.